Well, I'm excited today. Uh, we are going to be wrapping up our series. This whole month, we are really doing what our children showed us on the screen and talking about the greatest gifts that Jesus has brought to us, not just Jesus as healer, not just Jesus as Savior, but he's bringing us specific spiritual gifts so that we can glorify him, so that we can accomplish his will on earth as it is in heaven, and so that we can live the abundant life of joy and peace. And so let's pray, and we're going to dive in. I'm very excited about this one this morning. Um, I got it done really early this week, and so that gave me extra time to really marinate on it and pour over in prayer with it. I'm excited. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much already for what's happened in church the blessing that we have in church to worship you, to fellowship, to pray for one another, to talk about life, to dream together. And now, God, most importantly, to open up your word, because we are not here for a show. We're not here for a performance. We're not here as a country club. No, Lord, we want to hear from heaven. We want a word of God in our heart. We want to learn from the word of God. We want to be filled with truth here today, encouraged, inspired, that we can be vessels and lights to the world. So bless this time now. Go before us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. So moving to this beautiful nation called uh, Texas, uh, we've been very blessed in multiple ways. In March, we will celebrate three years being in Texas, and we've lived in San Antonio, Bernie, Houston, um, and now uh, for the rest of our lives right here in the city of champions, Duncanville. And we're excited to be here. One great thing I was awakened to is that barbecue in Texas is totally different than barbecue in California. Now, California Mexican food's a little bit different, but the barbecue here, because mainly, we have a different definition of what it is. Barbecue in Texas is smoked meat. It's pellet grills. It's, there's, there's a craft and even a sport to it in Texas. In California, it's atrocious. <laughs> One, you don't see a lot of barbecue restaurants in, in California, but what, what Californians call barbecue is really propane gas grilling. And because of the weather, they do it every day of the year. And so barbecue is, is gas grilling. And so I always had gas grills, and uh, my dad had this ministry of blessing me with amazing gas grills. I'm talking eight burners, I mean, uh, drawers that come out, huge stainless steel things. And I would cook on it all the time, but there were seasons like in the winter and others that uh, we would just put it away and not think about it. And one day I went out there after not using the grill for a couple weeks, and we're going to make some carne asada tacos, one of my son's favorite, just to grill out the meat real quick and, you know, no mess and so forth. And I go out there, I open up the lid, and I am not exaggerating. There was about one inch thick of rat droppings inside of that grill. Disgusting. And so I open up the drawer to see if any other damage. There was nests. There were skeletons. There was just, it was destroyed. And the thing about rats and mice is that they, their teeth continue to grow, so they have to gnaw on things in order to grind them down. So it gnawed on all of the gas lines, all of the electrical wires, everything. This thing was completely destroyed. And at night, I would see these things about this big running through my patio. I said, okay, we got to get rid of this. I worked in maintenance for several years at a church, and I know everything from the snap traps and the glue traps. I don't like those. I don't know if you're braver than me, but there's nothing exciting about seeing a flopping glue trap, you know, running around your kitchen and having to chase that thing. and like, I don't like it. I did some research, and this has nothing to do with the Bible, but it's some great life advice for you. Uh, the research I got was you take a five-gallon bucket, you fill it about two-thirds of the way up, you drill two holes on the side, take a wire clothes hanger and thread it through, you put a little can, a soda can, an empty peanut butter jar, something in the middle, 
Cover it with a little bit of peanut butter and some birdseed. Don't know what it is with mice and birdseed, but they love it. Then you put a little ramp that goes up to it, and in the middle of the night, those rats will go up. They can't walk on the wire, so they jump on the can and slip right into the water. Now, I know it's gruesome, and I know it's not the prettiest thing in the world, but you can catch five or six of these guys every single night. And all you got to do is pour out the water and toss them in the trash, no mess, and it's easy. But I am a believer, and I have a conscience, and uh, even though they're rats and they're varmints and, you know, they're pests, I still felt bad. <laughs> like, that's a bad way to die, and it's not as humane. So I actually researched, how long does it take for these poor little guys to slip away into heaven, into mice heaven? And uh, a, a, a a scientific lab one time did a study. They took one group of, of rats that all came from the same family, and they split them down the middle, not like in half. I mean, like, you know, separated the numbers. And, and one group, they put them in water and counted how long it would take for them to go to mice heaven, and it was 16 minutes exactly. Then they took the next group, and they put them in there, but at 15 minutes and 45 seconds, they pulled them out just for a breather, put them back in. 15 minutes, 45 seconds, pulled them back out. Do you know how much longer those mice survived? 20 hours. From 16 minutes to 20 hours. And what the scientific experiment was on was not on the anatomy of the body and all those type of things. It was on hope. It was on hope. And just that much of hope allowed these animals to go that much longer. And if that could be true for animals, how much more would hope be for the believer, for the human? They can take just a glimmer of hope, and not just hope that the world offers, but I'm talking about the hope that only comes from Jesus Christ. We have the hope of eternity. We have the hope of glory, but we have the hope of all the things that Jesus came and died in our place to bring us and to give us so we can not only be sustained, but that we can do all things in Christ who gives us the strength. So today we're concluding the series, God With Us, and so far, we've talked about some gifts through the three of my favorite Messianic Psalms, chapter 2, 22, and today we're going to conclude with chapter 110. And we talked about joy. We talked about the presence of help that Jesus gives to us. But today, we're going to talk about the presence of hope, our present hope. Now, this is not um, in your bulletins, the references there, but let me read to you two really quick verses found in Hebrews it's very poetic, it's very beautiful, and it says so much. It's Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. It says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to talk about Melchizedek in our uh, main scripture today. But this hope that is an anchor for our soul. Our, our soul, as you know, is, is the personality of us. It's our mind, our will, our emotions. It's the one thing that can waver between our physical body that will pass away and our spiritual man, which goes on for all eternity. The soul really is the thing that can waver. So it's talking about the hope of Jesus being the anchor of our soul. Hope is such a great word but it's not a wish. I hope this happens. That's a wish. Hope in the Bible is completely different. Hope is a confident expectation. But the thing is, there's multiple words for hope in the Bible. You can have a confident expectation of good, or you can have a confident expectation of evil. In the same way that you can have an expectation of faith, or you can have an expectation of fear, it can waver. 
So hope, though, is a confident expectation. It is what you are using to help give you the motivation and the strength to accomplish what God has called you to do. And we need that anchor in the craziness of what we're going on and seeing in our world today. There's so many things that make it so easy for us to be distracted and to have fear. So many different things. Even this Omicron, whatever variant it is this time around, and they're, they're trying to scare everybody again with the closures and the schools shutting down and, and all these other things. And after two years plus of this, we're like, really? Are we going to go again on another round? We're done. We're tired of it. We're sick of it. But we need hope. We need hope to keep our hearts steadfast on who God is. And there's a family of mine, a family in my previous church, that they really did an amazing job in their line of work in converting beat-up old houses into just glorious-looking mansions. Uh, They were working in different fields um, years ago. The husband was really an entrepreneur, a businessman, he did stuff like would take a, a energy drink nobody's heard of and build up the brand so good that Coca-Cola would buy them out. But he got stabbed in the back too many times by business partners. And so they decided that the wife who was really had an a anointing in interior design and the husband who not only had a construction background but had the business mind for it all, they combined their skills and they launched a business to be able to turn houses around. And I mean they don't look like the house, the same houses, completely different. I, I declared over them in prayer one time. I said, I, I declare that you shall become the magnolia of the West, the magnolia of the West. And they've done multiple houses. I mean, flipped them into multi-million dollar sales. And there was a time where on Facebook, she posted a picture of a house that they were living in. When they were just getting started, they would live in the house that they were flipping, then move to the next project. So their family was completely in this whole process with them. So the picture was a kitchen that was glorious, beautiful. I mean, absolute beautiful kitchen. They had redone and a kitchen table. The family was sitting around the table eating dinner, but in the background, you saw the rest of the house and it was stripped down to just the studs. So they're in this construction zone having a family meal and the caption that she put, which was so powerful, she says, in every project we do, the kitchen comes first. So that way in all the construction and all the chaos and all the frustrations and missed deadlines, every single day the family can still come together and have a sense of normal by having a home-cooked meal. And she basically made an anchor for normalcy in her family. And so much more in our faith. We need an anchor called hope. We need this anchor of his peace that can help us that when the storms of life come, we're not shaken and we don't waver in unbelief and we don't turn into the direction of doubt and distraction. And there's a big difference in our lives when we face storms between weakness and discouragement. Because in the Bible, weakness is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, when it comes to hope, you know, we're hoping for better days. We're expecting better days. But there are days where we just don't have it all together. And we deal with some discouragement. But let me encourage you that weakness, really in the Bible, as it says in 2 Corinthians 12, I believe, and, and my grace is sufficient. And God declares over him that in your weakness, I will be strong in your weakness, I will be strong. That weakness is more of a surrender. Yeah, we, we are weak. I'm human. God can do it. I can't always. And it's his power that I look to, not the strength that is found in me. So when I'm weak, that means I'm surrendering to your will, God. I'm surrendering in obedience to what you want me to do. I'm not going to figure it out. I'm solely looking to you. But discouragement, discouragement is more of I've given up. 
I've gone through enough storms and become bitter enough that I'm doubting God. And now it's not just this I'm feeling weak or, or I don't know what to do. It's utter discouragement, even depression. And I just want to encourage you that God makes a way where he, there is no way. God allows us to go through impossible things because he's the one of all the impossible, that he can make all things possible. We have a favor that rests on us, a hope that we have that the rest of the world doesn't. Right? Think about the Israelites. They were in slavery for years and years and years, and God supernaturally brings them out of their bondage. And then as they're finally free after all these years, what do they face? Impossible. Because in front of them, they have an ocean. Behind them, a murderous mob that wants to kill them. What are they going to do? Where are they going to go? Well, God supernaturally split open an ocean, and they were able to walk through. And I love how the scriptures, it says that they didn't walk through in mud. It says that they walk through on dry ground. Now, if there's an ocean that's been on an ocean floor since God created it, and God all of a sudden removes the waters, I wouldn't expect it to be dry. I would expect it to be sopping wet and muddy and footprints going through it. But I believe that metaphorically and symbolically speaking, that it was a baptism as it's when that water parted, they walked through on dry ground because there should be no record from where they came from and no pathway to go back to the bondage that God delivered them from. They had a favor when the ocean split to walk through impossible. But when the Egyptians saw that, they wanted to do the same. They wanted to follow suit. They wanted to go on the chase. But the moment they walked in something they had no favor over, no anointing over, in a, in a direction God did not tell them to go, they were killed. So we have a hope that the rest of the world does not have. And I always check my heart that I have this supernatural hope and this peace only found in God. And so if I ever find myself discouraged, if I might find myself feeble and, and bitter, I know it's not God's fault. It's mine. So I check my heart and I say, God, is there something that I have done to disconnect with you? Have I become bitter? Is there sin in my heart that I'm not confessing and not dealing with? Is there fears that I'm letting rule my heart? Am I worshiping something else other than you? Because I'm bound down to it in fear. But I also ask God, am I going the opposite direction? Just like Jonah, he said, go to Nineveh. And he says, that, those are heathens. Why do you want me to go there, God? And instead, he went this way. We know the rest of the story. But sometimes you're discouraged because God told you here, and instead you went there. And there's no favor there. There's no anointing there. He's called you in obedience to go there. So sometimes as I've just lost connection and intimacy in his manifest presence, sometimes it's I'm disobeying. And, and how could I walk in God's blessing when I'm turning my back on him? So I constantly check my heart, and there's one thing that I'm challenged on. I wouldn't say that I'm encouraged with, but that I'm challenged with. And you know in the scriptures in the gospel of John, it says Jesus promised that in this world we are at trials and tribulations, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But in John 14, verse 1, Jesus commands us and says, do not let your hearts be discouraged. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, when Jesus says something in the scripture, is that a suggestion? So regardless of my emotions, regardless of how I'm feeling, regardless of what mood I'm in, regardless of how much sleep I had, if I'm feeling like a baby and throwing a tantrum, regardless of that, Jesus has commanded, do not let your hearts be troubled. From, from the heart come all the things of life. It is the wellspring of life. It is something that we need to jealously guard because if we allow our hearts to be troubled, we fall off track to where God wants to take us. We lose our hope and we can't afford to do that. 
So as I mentioned in Hebrews 6.19, Melchizedek, I want to go now to the Psalm, chapter 110, and we're going to look at this Messianic Psalm, which I found out and studied this past week was one of the number one Psalms referenced in the New Testament, even especially by Jesus. And we're going to see what, what is foretold. And the reason I say that this is a, a Psalm on hope, even though I don't believe hope is even mentioned in this version of the Bible, is because of what Jesus came to accomplish being the reason of our hope. So we're going to read the entire Psalm. It's only seven verses long. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I always ask that question. If you're, uh, if you're looking for the enemy, if you're looking for the devil, the only place you need to look is right underneath your shoe because that's where he's supposed to be, a footstool to us. But this, my Lord, is to sit next to my Lord, is David really saying, uh, Lord, as in Yahweh, Lord Almighty, uh, the, the omnipotent one, the Lord God. And then Lord, as in capital L, lowercase rest of the letters, being Messiah, Adonai. So he's distinguishing between Lord God, who we can't even pronounce your name. We take out the vowels of, the, of that name to Lord, the coming Messiah, Adonai. Verse 2, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the delay of your power. In um, verse 3 there, the word volunteer means like an army a host that God is raising up soldiers to deploy, basically. So your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. We are called a royal priesthood. And according to the order of Melchizedek, which in the Old Testament was a theophany, a Christology of, of Jesus appearing in the Old Testament, many scholars believe, and in there, there's no record in the book of Genesis of Melchizedek. No genealogy, no record of where he came from, no name of his parents, but he shows up to declare to Abraham, and Abraham actually gives him a tenth of all that he owned. It was a foreshadowing of the high priest, who would be priest forever, and that would be Jesus to mediate between us and God. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. Now, this sounds bad, right? Like, God kills in the Old Testament. God has anger. There, there's things that we see of God that doesn't make him look like he's a good God, even though he is. But see, the thing is, God's wrath, God's, even when the time of death comes, is always pointed towards sin and unredemptive people. It's a different story when it comes to his children, and we need to keep that in mind. But what it shows me is that God is my vindicator. And that I don't have to be upset over people that hurt me because those who are out of covenant with God are, are facing a greater wrath than I could ever unleash on my own. Verse 6, he will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over the, the broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head in reference to the cross there. So I, I read this messianic scripture that's saying that Jesus will always be the mediator, the, the middleman between me and the Father, and always interceding for me and providing the way to get to God. But he's also a strong God who is going to rule, and the enemies will be under his feet, and that nothing can come against my God. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Nothing is impossible for God. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves of that. And my absolute favorite portion of scripture, period, is Romans 4, 18, 22. 
I've referenced this several times with this church, with our family here, multiple times. But Abraham, who was given a promise when he was young, decades passed before it came to fruition. He was told he would be a father of many nations to a wife who could not have babies. And in that impossibility, he still believed. In Romans chapter 4, verse 18, it speaks about in hope, against hope, Abraham believed. And without wavering and unbelief, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body as good as dead, yet with respect to the promise of God, he was fully assured that what God had promised, he would also perform. There's so much packed into that. But Abraham had an anchor for his soul. He had a hope that would not let him waver when times of trouble came. And he was able to stick to focusing on what God had promised, what God had commanded him to do, where God told him to go because of this anchor of hope that he had in his soul. And so I want to extrapolate a little bit from that example of Abraham and how we can keep hope alive in our own hearts. And in your bulletin, you should have some fill-ins there, a couple bits of encouragement possibly some challenge as well. But point number one, from what we see in Abraham, from the hope we have in Jesus, don't waver in unbelief. Don't waver in unbelief. You know, there's that old movie by Jim Carrey, a slapstick comedy movie, and, and uh, he's after this girl, and, and she's married. It's just a dumb situation. But at the end of the movie, he's like, is there any way, is there any possibility between us Give it to me straight. What are my chances? Like one in a hundred? And she looks at him, married woman, crazy guy. And she goes, more like one in a million. And he sits there, looks at her and says, so you're saying there's a chance, right? Like this dummy didn't get it, right? But in, in a horrific example, there's, there's a way in my heart that if you just give me a little bit of hope, I'm going to take it for all it's worth. It's like a toddler. You give them an inch, they're going to go a mile. All you need is a little bit of hope. And we need to believe for crazy hope. I mean, I watched something as simple as football. And a couple of weeks ago, they were talking about the Detroit Lions. And if there's any Detroit Lions fans in here, sorry, Miss Hazel, I know you're from Detroit. And the Lions, they're poor Lions. They're always never winning. Um, and this year, they only have one win, 11 losses, and one tie. And a couple of weeks ago, the announcers during the game said, isn't it funny? Football is funny because they're still it's almost impossible, but there's still a scenario in which the Detroit Lions can still go to the playoffs with only one win. Like, everything has to go completely right, but it's still a possibility. There is always going to be hope, period. No matter how hopeless your situation looks like, no matter how hopeless life seems to be sometimes or unfair it seems to be, there is always hope. In Abraham, in verse 18 of Romans 4, it says that in hope against hope. Again, two different words. Expectation of good, expectation of bad. But it says that against uh, expectation of evil, he believed. He believed. It was the power of believing and not wavering in unbelief that allowed him to keep that type of hope. My favorite psalm, period, is Psalm 27. And in verse 13, it says, I would have despaired. I would have gone down that downward spiral. I would have fallen apart if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I looked up in the King James Version. Any King James Version people still? Yeah, come on, come on. Thus saith unto thee, thy declareth, right? And in the, the dictionary of the King James Version, it says that unbelief is this, withholding belief. There's three, three definitions. Withholding belief, you're blind to belief, or you have infidelity of belief. 
So God gives you an impossible situation. He calls you somewhere. He, he pushes you into a ministry. Something happens in life that requires you to believe. Unbelief says, I'm not going to. It's too scary. Unbelief says, I, I don't know how God's going to do this. And you're blinded to how God even wants to lead you through that. Or your heart is so racked with sin and doubt and fear that you turn your back from it. And that's the definition of unbelief. But all things are possible with God. In Mark chapter 9, verse 24, we see Jesus talking about all things are possible to them that believe. And this man who was riddled with unbelief, he came before Jesus and said, help me with my unbelief. If there's a powerful prayer you want to pray every single morning, you wake up and say, God, help me with my unbelief. Help me with my doubt. Help me to rid my heart of anything that's going to keep me from loving you with all of my heart. A couple months ago, I was uh, talking with a Christian counselor, and I think it's very healthy to uh, routinely go and see a counselor and to talk about your feelings and to get outside advice from people who don't know you and not are part of your life. And I was talking about some situation I can't remember now, but what she told me was, I need you to put that blank negative emotion on trial. So if we're talking about unbelief, we need to put our unbelief on trial. And when she told me that, I said, ooh, that's going to preach. And now it is. <laughs> we need to put our unbelief on trial. So unbelief wants to creep in. The enemy wants to drop a lie in our heart. He wants to keep us from renewing our mind in truth and, and being transformed in the truth of Jesus. And so when unbelief comes, when doubt comes, when fear comes, put it on trial. Put it on the stand. Cross-examine it. Question it. Why am I feeling this way? Where did this come from? What does God say about this? Where in the scriptures is this going to give me hope? And you put that on trial so that you can find a freedom. But we cannot afford as believers to waver in unbelief. It's more than just us. It's more than just being about us. We need strong belief and strong faith in this world for ourselves, for our families, for the world, and for the assignment that God has given to us while we're alive here on planet Earth. So don't waver in unbelief. The second thing is don't remain weak in faith. Don't remain weak in faith. Now, again, uh, weakness can mean surrender. That's one word in the scriptures. But weakness could also mean, in another word in the Greek, it means being feeble, being fully exhausted, like physically being weak. And so we can't be weak in faith. There's a difference between weakness and surrender, but not weak in the faith that God has given to us. You know, one of the saddest things that I, I see and that breaks my heart is when a pastor, especially a senior pastor, falls from grace. Now, you know our testimony, and we've experienced a pastor who stabbed us in the back and fell in sin and was fired from his job and, and all that. But more recently, uh, Hillsong Church from Australia, their pastor that they had in Hillsong, New York City, Carl Lentz, uh, cheated on his wife and fell from grace. And I just, I don't understand how they get to that point. You're a best-selling author. You got thousands of people that you minister to every day. God has used you in a tremendous way. You have an anointing that many people will be envious of, and then you just fall from grace. So somehow they let sin in. Somehow they let lies in. Somehow they got to a point where they became so bitter that their faith began to become weak. And that weakness turned into a separation from God. And that separation turned into a place where eventually it was found out and they were removed from their position. Now, faith is a powerful thing. And the Bible has many different ways of explaining faith with the believer. We can have a lack of faith. We can have little faith. We can have weak faith. And I want to specifically look at little faith and weak faith. So Jesus, after he calmed the storm, looked to his disciples and said, 
Why didn't you guys do this? I've given you all my power and authority. Why didn't you speak to the storm and calm it? And he says, you of little faith. Little faith just means you got some more growth to do. You, you need some more knowledge, especially God's type of knowledge and truth, to strengthen your faith. Because we are all given a measure of faith, and it's like a muscle to exercise and grow. So little faith means you just have some more growth to, to go. You're not fully aware of what you have. But weak faith is more of immaturity. Weak faith is saying, I know what I have, but I'm not going to do it. Weak faith says, I'm, I don't feel like it. I don't want to do it. And we cannot walk in weakness of faith. I've heard a pastor say that spiritual gifts are free, but maturity is expensive. It requires discipline. It requires work. It requires us to, to crucify the flesh and to fully focus on him. Spiritual gifts are free, but maturity is expensive and requires discipline. Now, Abraham was given hope, but decades later, he had to continue to give, keep the faith. So he was told, you're going to be a father of so many kids. It's going to be like, grab a handful of sand and try to count it. And that's, it's going to be like your children and their children's children. It's going to be impossible to count because there's going to be so many of them. And all those decades of trying and not seeing a baby and not seeing a baby and not seeing a baby and not seeing a baby, he had to hold on to faith and not walk in weakness of faith of just throwing the towel and giving up. You know, we, we have to be in a place where we have to have a delight in our disciplines. Don't just read the Bible because you feel like you have to. Read the Bible to hear the heartbeat of God. Don't pray because you think you're, you're going to not have a good day if you don't pray. Pray to hear the voice of God. And, and it's, it's, not just, it's not just praying for the sake of prayer. It's falling in love with the gift that we have in prayer. It's falling in love with the privilege that we have in prayer. We have to delight in the disciplines that we have in the Lord because honestly, God may only use you one time in your entire life, and that's it. I mean, what was 90 years old when God really stepped in and used Abraham? Moses hid for 40 years in the wilderness in fear away from God, but when he was 80 years old, God used him? Jesus was 30 years old before he stepped into ministry. What if God says, I'm going to use you one time when you're 70 years old and that's it for your entire life? Would you be content? Could you be so satisfied in his presence? so in tune and intimate with him that the greatest gift of him is all that you need. And then when he calls you in intimacy to step out and accomplish something, you can. That it's not about your platform, your ministry, how people think you're such a great person because of all that you do. It has nothing to do with that, but all that he has given to you. But that you can walk, I'm so content in him and in relationship with him. I don't need anything else, but when you call me, I will. And I won't be weak in faith, but I'll be strong in faith because I know the one who is calling me is faithful. The last thing, point number three, is that we need to stay watchful in his promise. Stay watchful in his promise. Abraham, it says that he, in respect to the promise of God, did not waver in unbelief, but was fully assured that God would perform the promise that he had told him. So Abraham received a, a promise, and with respect to that promise, it moved him forward. And in, in the Greek, that's exactly what that word means. The word respect means into, moving towards. So moving towards the promise that God has spoken over to Abraham, moving into, moving forward towards, he was able to stand in hope. He was able to have strong faith. Now, I did a quick study and, and looked at a few scholars who made a tally of how many times that a promise was said in the Scripture, and I was blown away. There are some scholars say there's like 30,000 promises, but there's only 31,000 verses in the Bible, so that's a big stretch. But the more realistic is over 8,000 
promises are in the Bible, but over 7,400 of those promises are a direct promise from God to man. So if you don't know what God's promise over your life is, I just encourage you to open up the Bible, pick one, (laughs) find one. Because the word of God will speak to you. The, the word of God is the literal voice of God. And there are 7,400 verses in here that can speak to your heart and give you a promise to hold on to. But there's also another avenue, uh, speaking more in the charismatic Pentecostal worlds, called the gift of prophecy. And the gift of prophecy can deliver a promise and a word of God from heaven into your heart as well. And that's why I call these pregnant prophetic promises. And the reason I call them pregnant it's because you may receive a scripture, you may receive a prophetic word that was given to you 20 years ago, but a new thing pops up into your life and that same word is still available for you today. Why do we feel like it's only for that moment, for that day? There's no end to it. it God's word is pregnant. It continues. We can read the same verse a thousand times and get a thousand different revelations from God because it's pregnant. Remember, over 10 years ago, a friend of mine, uh, he walks in a prophetic ministry. His name is Matt Gonzalez, and we need to pray for him. He's in the hospital right now with COVID and double pneumonia. Um, He's a few years older than me. Uh, Matt Gonzalez, make sure to keep him in your prayers. But he declared over me uh, over 10 years ago, he said, your ministry, in your ministry, your calling card will be identity. And for 10 plus years now, many of my sermons, the things I've written in the books that I've authored have been about the identity of the believer, spiritual identity. But we're moving into a new season of life and I'm, I'm exploring um, a new degree at uh, SAGU. Actually, it's the exact same thing that Pastor Ron had gone through. And we were having this conversation on Friday night in a degree in counseling. And I never thought of it. I never explored it. But God's been putting it on my heart more so to help the people of my church, to help others, to get a greater understanding of the mind that God has created in humans. And so I'm exploring this. And I just thought, wow, this is a different degree, a different area. It's not necessarily preaching in church, but it's one more area in the kingdom of God that helps people understand their identity. So 10 years ago, he tells me uh, this, this deal that you your calling card in ministry is going to be identity, whether that's at the pulpit or whether that's in a chair in my office, heart to heart with somebody, helping them see who they really are in God. So pregnant prophetic words and promises are also given to us. And I encourage you, write them down. Write them down. Keep a record of them. Review them to see what God wants to keep telling you. Pregnant prophecies. But there is always, 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 always hope. And I want to encourage us today, and I want to just finish with this, that the reason we have hope is because of Jesus. And if Jesus has given to us hope, we need to be able to be strong to give it to other people. Matthew 10, it says, freely you have received, freely give. So if we have received hope from God, we want to position ourselves to give it away because there is always, always hope. A few years ago, um, I had a kind of a favor from another friend. They said, somebody asked me to go visit an elderly man. He's uh, probably only going to be on on planet earth for a couple more days. Um, and he just requested a pastor. I can't make it. Are you available? I'm like, sure. So I went down there. He was 97 years old. And I sat down next to him and started this conversation, just wanted to hear his life and his story and, and all these things. And in his stories, I could kind of discern that he wasn't a believer. Asked him about his family. He had one son. That was it. His son didn't have any children. Everybody else that was a family uh, had passed away. He outlived them all. He was by himself. Uh, Nobody visited him in the nursing home that he was at, and he was facing death. And so he thought that it would be a good idea to have a preacher come and just, you know, pray over him. 
And I prodded a little bit and asked him questions, and I could clearly see that in the way that he was responding to these questions, like good deeds, and I don't know if I'm good enough to get into heaven, he had no idea about salvation. And I declared over him Ephesians 2 and Romans 10 and all these things. And I looked into the eyes and held the hands of this 97-year-old man who was days away from death. And I said, do you want Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you, do you want to confess him and know that the moment you close your eyes forever here on earth, it'll be open forever in eternity? And he said, yeah. And I led a 97-year-old man to the Lord. And the very next day, he died. To the very last moment, there is always always, always hope. But what if I had a bad day that day? What if I was in a bad mood? What if I was hangry? And a, and a person who said, you know, I need a favor. And I said, I'm just not feeling it. We need to be in a position where if God has given us hope, whatever we're going through, and it's okay to go through feelings and emotions and have a bad day, but let's keep our eyes fixated on the one who has given us an anchor of the soul called hope that we can be ministers of his love and his light to those around us. So, Father, we are so grateful. In the last couple weeks, it seems like Christmas is something we just do and do and do and have done for years. But we're always reminded of the powerful, simple things of our faith. Love, hope, joy, and a peace that only comes from you. And, God, it's a peace that doesn't come from this world. It's a supernatural peace that comes from your heart. It's a hope that, that can't fail us. It's a hope that comes from heaven. And so we thank you, Father, for these gentle reminders in the last couple of weeks. And as we enter into Christmas Eve and, and the day after Christmas, we'll celebrate again on, on Sunday, Christmas time, to remember that you came into this world, that before we had an opportunity to love you, you loved us first. And while we were yet sinners, you died for us. How much more would you do for one who lives for you? So, Father, thank you for these reminders and help us that in the little ways that we can get distracted, we, be, we would become stronger in our faith. Help us to hold on to hope with a greater grasp. Help us, Father, to look for opportunities where we can give away even the simple things that you have given to us to see a powerful expression of your love and power. So we love you today, God. We thank you for all that we have celebrated today, the things we have done to worship you, the cute video from our amazing children. And now as we begin a brand new week and we celebrate Christmas week, may you go before us and may we experience your presence greater. May we be overwhelmed in your love this week. And may you speak to us words we've never heard before, God. So we love you. Go before us. We thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. We will see you on Friday, Christmas Eve. Be blessed until then.